Welcome to Polite Conversations, episode 63. I thought I'd take a little break from my mini-series, Woking Up. If you've been listening to it, you'll know why I need a break from it every now and then. But, Woking Up fans, worry not, I'll be back again soon with a brand new episode of that. It is in the works as we speak. And if you haven't checked Woking Up out yet, you should. It is available on this very same podcast feed. Episodes 1 to 6 of that should be up in full wherever you get your podcasts. Anywho, now, if you're not a rational, genius, centristy type, you probably don't spend a lot of time obsessing over the N-word as a free speech issue. But even then, you can't help but encounter these stories over and over again in the endless, exhausting culture wars. Associated press offices bombed to the ground in Gaza. No big deal. Trump threatening the press while he was president. Meh. Some white guy criticized or fired for saying the N-word at work. Ah, it's the end of free speech. You know how this works. Is it really about free speech? Why are the anti-wokes so inconsistent on this matter? And what constitutes a slur? Who can reclaim one? Can we strip it of its context entirely? And are there unique circumstances where one can utter a slur confidently without worrying about hurting or offending others? Well, I've got linguist Dr. Caitlin Green joining me to discuss these things I know you've always wanted to know. And she isn't just any old linguist. She's one that has her finger firmly on the pulse of anti-woke griftiness. She's a keen intellectual dark web watcher and is very familiar with their slimy rhetorical strategies and bigotry rebranding efforts. The IDW and adjacent worlds are fascinating to me linguistically because they are such a hub of how to use slippery, intellectual-sounding language to legitimize far-right talking points. And that's why I thought Dr. Green was such a great guest to discuss this topic with, because she watches the same gross corners of the internet as I do. And this episode came about by chance, really. We were scheduled for a panel on a different topic, but one of the panelists couldn't make it, so since I already had her on the line, I suggested we record on this topic instead. Just on the fly. And it turned out to be a really interesting chat. Neither of us had prepared for this specific conversation, but I think it turned out great anyway, so enjoy. And if you find some value in my work, please consider supporting via Patreon. Because without listeners like you, this tiny little show isn't possible or feasible. And I prefer to keep it ad-free so it is you, the audience, that can help it grow and thrive and more effectively push back against the things I try to push back on. You can also support the show by sharing episodes and talking about them, leaving comments and feedback and iTunes reviews. All of that is much appreciated. And now let's get on with the episode. Make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects. And uh, you're not impolite to people. Oh, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, (laughs) ever controversial or impolite. Yeah, yeah, okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Today I'll be talking to Caitlin Green, who is a linguist and an independent researcher. Hello, Caitlin. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm so good. It's so nice to talk to you and put a voice to the tweets I see. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you, too. So maybe first, why don't you tell everyone more about yourself, and then we can dive into 
Yeah, so I'm Caitlin. Um, I'm a linguist. My focus is on discourse analysis. Um, and what that means is that I'm just really interested in the ways that we use language to construct our knowledge of the world and to impact the world. You know, it's little things like you can impact another person based on your word choice or how you choose to, uh, to, to phrase whatever it is that you're trying to say. Um, and so I, I'm a little bit in, into pragmatics as well. Cause that's like a subfield of linguistics that does that. Into what? Sorry. Uh, pragmatics. So there's like a pragmatics in philosophy, but then there's a pragmatics in linguistics and it's totally different. Um, but ultimately, you know, it comes out of this philosopher of language, um, Austin, who wrote how to do things with words and his whole conception, um, kind of like changed my life when I was in grad school. Cause it was all about how the things you choose to say and the way you choose to say them have material impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's like obviously true, right? If you need to make a request of somebody, the way you phrase that request is going to change how they react to you. Right. Right. Um, so that, that kind of stuff just drove me crazy. I was so excited to learn about it. And so, um, that's the angle that I come at stuff with. Mm, so you must find, uh, plenty of interest in the N word conversations and concern trolling that you see in the rational sphere. Definitely. And what gets to me is that there are a couple of people who are professional linguists or like linguistics adjacent who are taking that discussion and just so oversimplifying the question to make it totally useless, you know, or, or even misleading. So, you know, they get all obsessed with this idea about mention versus use and, and, Mm -hmm. um, mention versus use entails a whole bunch of super interesting questions that they never get into. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what I like to look at. So, like, what kinds of questions? So, you know, um, when somebody wants to convey that a racial slur has happened, right? Um, like, say, they're teaching a class about racism, and they want to, you know, they want to say like these epithets were hurled at people during this time, the question is, do you utter the word or not? Uh Um, and is it okay because you're quoting somebody or because you're not personally endorsing, you know, all of those social and historical facts that come with that word. Uh Uh, and so the people that I'm thinking of, like, you know, Steven Pinker, John McWhorter, they just come down a hard line. It's always okay. If you're not you know, endorsing or like using the word under your own power. You're just quoting somebody or you're referencing it. Right. Um, and that's just such an oversimplification because you, you should be asking questions like who is saying the word? Uh Why are they saying the word? Is there a way that they could have gotten away with not saying the word? Is there a way they could have like, you know, played a clip of the original situation where they don't actually have to say it. Uh Um, and, and if they're opting not to use those options, why? Right. And I always see this in the IDW sphere is like, as if it's considered some sort of weakness to self censor and to say something like the N word, as opposed to the actual slur. Like I heard a conversation on the Joe Rogan podcast with, uh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I listen to the best stuff all the time. Yeah. (laughs) My brain is melted. Um, uh, it was a conversation on (laughs) Joe Rogan with Hannibal Buress, Sam Harris, Josh Zepps. And, uh, at, at some point he had gone to the washroom and then they started joking about saying the N word. And then I think Josh said it and he's like, you know, I'm not saying it in an offensive way or something. It's just that I don't want to, I decided that I would never censor myself on this. And as if that, like, it was just completely unnecessary. The question is, is, is whether or not, hey, are we going? Animal right? Styles talk shit about. Hey, are we going? Now, in now I can really say what I think about police violence. Animal <laughs> just went to the toilet. Q N W A. You know, the question is, a, are we moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? And b, are the people who think that they're on the right side of history here, that they're fighting the good fight, 
actually on the right side of history, or are they contributing, as you say, Sam, to, to, to an increasing polarization? And as a foreigner here, I definitely noticed. I mean, like on my part, we've spoken before about the word nigger, Joe, and the fact How that I you. the fact that I had to come to a you had to wait till he left in this <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> that is lucky that he happens to not be in the room. White privilege uh, in action. But the fact that I had to make a conscious decision at some point that I wasn't going to use the phrase the N word in the United States because outside of the United States, hmm. um, one can discuss the existence of the word. I mean, of course, it's completely taboo and as it should be to ever use it in, uh, against somebody. But you can discuss the existence of the word. And I think that... So, so in Australia, people don't say the N-word ever? Never, wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Do when I'm in town. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, <laughs> We're all getting into black jokes by Hannibal's peeing. But I... <laughs> <laughs> point is, hmm. it is, it is noticeable coming here that there is a more, uh, that the white liberal guilty form more of anti-racist racism is part of the problem. Yeah. Anti-racist the, racism? Yeah, in other words, the, 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 day when, the day when Americans can freely talk about the word nigger without saying the N-word is not going to be a day in which America is more racist. It's going to be a day when America is less racist. And this kind of constipated white terror about, com- about conversing about race yeah. is, is evidence of... I mean, is, t- is entangled with the problem of racism. In Australia, it's much more laid back. People are you're much less likely to get criticised for making it... So yeah, I thought I'd come back in later and stick the relevant clips of this conversation into my chat with Caitlin, and oh, it is so much worse than I remembered, and so awful in the context of the conversation they were having before Hannibal went to the bathroom, which was all Sam spouting the usual black-on-black crime points and the anti-BLM points. Now, of course, the N-word wasn't said in a deliberately, blatantly racist way here, but just imagine, after that whole emotional conversation where Hannibal got pretty heated and angry, understandably, at the Breitbart-type point Sam was spouting, the three white guys in the room decided to laugh and joke about this shit. And Josh told us about his extremely brave stance of saying the N-word in full. What a hero. Now... I'd recommend that you go and look up the entire conversation to fully absorb how terrible it was, but interestingly, I had a really hard time finding it. I couldn't find it among any of Joe Rogan's Spotify episodes. Maybe I wasn't looking hard enough, I don't know. Then I went to YouTube, and I distinctly remember there were tons of accounts that posted that conversation before, and those didn't seem to be there either now. All I found was this partial version that cut off abruptly at the end. Anyway, I'm glad it had the bit I was looking for. And also, do note how they end that line of thought with criticizing the real racists, aka the (laughs) anti-racists, and how their idea of a colorblind utopia is one in which anyone can utter the slur without criticism. Because guys, that's the real thing holding us back from true equality. The fact that white people can't utter this loaded and painful word without any pushback. The day when Americans can freely talk about the word nigger without saying the n-word is not going to be a day in which America is more racist. It's going to be a day in which America is less racist. It's not like there was a time before where Americans could talk freely about and say this particular slur without using terms like the n-word. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe it was a slightly more racist time. Apparently white people who say things like the n-word rather than bravely say the whole thing are just giving in to their constipated white guilt. If only everyone could be as brave as the ITW rational heroes. I mean, what a fucking hill to choose, right? Jeez. (laughs) Alright, let's get back to the conversation. And then I've seen, like, on atheist Twitter, right. someone will be like, you know, N-word, and use the a- actual slur, is a slur, right? So they want to yeah. just type it out and say, it's a slur, and then they want your reaction. So right. I can see that they m- there might be some circumstances where you may need to say it to describe a situation or if someone said it to you and you're just like really hyped up like I can't believe that person called me you know this word Mm -hmm. that's the thing about um you know people who are using language human beings we have this really amazing um cognitive mechanism that's all focused on 
the, the cooperation of communication, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're working together to understand each other as best as we can, and we're really good at it. And so we can tell most of the time, you know, what the reasoning is behind the use of a word like that. And so if, if you're saying it when you had a really easy other option, then that triggers some inferences in the hearer or, you know, in, in the interpreter that Mm -hmm. they're going to start thinking about like, okay, so why, why did you do that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also like when there's like a difference in the power balances, right? Like if you're a professor and you obviously have authority and power over your students and then you're like, say you're reading a passage out of some old book or something, but you just keep doing it and it can still be hurtful it can still be like you don't have to keep saying this painful word that brings up all these memories and all these memories of being bullied and just mistreated by people and you know it's not it's got no positive associations it's not yours to reclaim especially if you're you know a professor that is white for example right so yeah people don't think about that stuff and it's just it the, the people that spend all their time. So here's it. Like I can see that there might be situations where you've said it and you're absolutely not racist. Maybe you read it in something. You're just saying that, Oh, that person called me this word. However, the people that are just asking questions about what are the specific situations where we can say it all the fucking time. And they spend all their time on this. Yeah. It feels like you're talking to a child who's like trying to push the boundaries, right? Of whatever rule. So if you say like, you can't be in the living room right now, they've got like their toes up to the threshold of the door being like, well, I'm not in the living room right now. And like, can I put my toes in? Yes, exactly. Can I breathe into the living room? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, And then, so the other thing about the study of slurs in general, and even specifically the study of racial slurs in particular, is that the N-word is such an extreme edge case that it often will break down even the rules that are agreed about um, for in terms of how slurs work. Mm. So one of the, you know, the fact that it is associated with extreme amounts of abuse, murder, lynchings, you mm. know, it's been hurled at people, um, you know, just while they're trying to walk down the street, minding their own business mm-hmm. by like people in trucks. Um, and, and it just makes people feel so viscerally unsafe. Mm-hmm. And, and in that way, it is different from a lot of other slurs mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the visceral reality, the emotional reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you know, I was asking around, I was asking philosophers and linguists, you know, what do I need to know um, about this question? So I was talking to a linguist, Kelly Wright, who is amazing, um, and she pointed me to this psycholinguistic text by Jos van Berkham, um, who is really interested in the role of emotion in cognition, because um, we already know that emotion impacts the way you form memories, the way that you do reasoning, you know, it, the way you make decisions. Emotion is just intrinsically a part of what your brain is doing at any given time. And so it just is silly to pretend that emotional responses are not going to also touch the way that you interpret language. Mm-hmm. And so what he says is that um, when you hear something that is inherently threatening, like the N-word, you're going to experience a change of your physical state. You're going to experience the stress response. You're going to experience um, you know, physiological effects, cognitive effects, behavioral effects, you're going to be put into a new state. So it's like the ultimate in, in performative language in that it enacts something on you. Uh It's just silly to be a linguist and not acknowledge that reality. Like, you know, this goes back to theories of language going back at least to the 1960s that we understand that you can have an impact on somebody with your language. Mm. Um, and yet we have people like Steven Pinker who are upset that a professor got investigated for using the N word and is making fun of and straw manning that perspective by saying, Oh, words aren't magic. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just words. However, somehow anything anti-racist is magically super emotional and upsetting. (laughs) for these guys. Well, yeah, that's the thing. 
And just today we had, you know, that motion filed by the FAIR organization of which Steven Pinker is an advisor where they said that teaching anti-racism is divisive and harmful and causes stress responses, you know, associated with feeling shame (laughs) (laughs) because those poor white children now are like ashamed to be themselves and it's basically abuse. Right. And like, so how come when we're talking about using a racial epithet where you don't have to versus anti-racist education, you have come to completely different conclusions about how cognition works which is your field of study. Right. Why do you think that is? <laughs> and why are they so transparently <laughs> hypocritical? Right. It's just very obviously working backwards from the conclusion he wants, right? Hmm. Um, where, you know, this thing is good for me because I'm, I'm the, like, I'm, I'm the campus free speech guy. I'm involved in, you know, fair org. I'm involved in fire, the, the legal team that, Mm -hmm. you know, helps with campus free speech. Uh, He's involved in all kinds of organizations that are about this. So he needs to raise his profile to drum up this cancel culture stuff. Mm -hmm. And Um, this fair, fair org is such a clown show. It's like, Oh Yeah. It's like a who's who of the anti anti racist and oh, let me ask you this: What do you make of like this new, I guess, incarnation of? Uh, I know there's a word for it, but I'm gonna avoid saying it uh, for now. <laughs> so anti anti racism. What what is what is that? <laughs> is there a simpler way we could say anti anti racism? Well, you know the old joke, you just cancel out your fractions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just simplify it down and you're left with just one word. Um, but, I mean, ultimately, I don't I don't think it matters to them what the actual arguments are, right? It, it's all about raising their own profile and preventing being usurped. And they see this kind of boogeyman of wokeness or whatever as a major threat to that. Right, they are just status quo warriors. That's absolutely yeah. all it is. The thing about Fair Org too is when I started looking into who they are, um, I found Chris Rufo, mm. you know, the the Manhattan Institute Discovery Institute guy, um, the intelligent design. Yeah, guy. they teach teach the controversy, dude. He was. Um, on his on the Stop CRT Parents Against CRT website, he was talking about Fair Org as a part of his Stop CRT Legal Coalition. So as if it's like under the umbrella of his team of lawyers, whose specific aim is to censor anti-racist education and and uh, trainings. Interesting. Yeah, I found that very confusing. Fair Org is all about pushing their view of anti-diversity, whereas um, they claim that the left's focus on, uh, I guess, even just noticing racism is the real racism, right? Mm-hmm. It's just so slimy how they package this stuff. It's so slimy and yeah. so slippery. And if they were just more honest about it, like, honestly, I appreciate Tucker Carlson more than I do these types because <laughs> at least he says what he is really astroturfed as well. Right. Because it's always framed through. This is the story of a parent of a white child whose feelings were really hurt because of what he heard in his class, you know? And so then you're supposed to be just thinking about this poor child who, who was, you know, damaged by having to learn about the racist history of his country. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny as an ex-Muslim to me, like I remember in the atheist scene when they would all go on about how, you know, in Islamic countries, all this stuff is whitewashed and they, they won't teach the more controversial parts of the history and how that's bad. And, you know, we should be more honest about these things and that's how we change attitudes. And, but when it comes to turning the lens inward, it's always the same exact thing. And that contrast to me is just mind boggling is the way that they talk about Islamic conservatives and how, you know, we should push for change and progress and all of that. But when it comes to their own conservatives, it's like we need to protect them and their views at all costs. And of course we're not right wingers. We are, 
true liberals. Right. We're all about freedom, actually, except for don't say that and don't teach that. And I'm going to have a lawsuit ready to stop you from doing it. Yeah, man. If you if you call someone right wing, they'll... Well, Dave Rubin used to be threatening to sue people who wrote articles about him all the time, but that's from a couple of years ago, which is like 200 years in internet years, I suppose. I guess he's an open right-winger now. He can't possibly be still denying that he's right-wing, but he's probably pushing the, he's pushing the, um, the left made me this way stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. And what do you want to bet? He's like a classical liberal. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. By that Um, he means far right, classically. Yeah. Very classically. I used to do a joke, believe it or not, I think I told you this once on, on your radio show, Adam. I used to do a joke that involved the N-word, and it wasn't to be racially offensive or, or in a pejorative way. I was doing an impression to make fun of people that use words like that. And for about five years, it would get a huge laugh. And then I remember one night, I was on stage at Gotham Comedy Club in New York City, and the crowd kind of, they all froze like all at the same time. And I remember in my head thinking, I'm never going to tell that joke again. place for a comedian to be it's a dangerous place for anybody to be even the guardian which is on the left said this is ridiculous we can't discuss a huckleberry finn yeah because you, you can't say words that that are in there do we want to go into like the, the linguistics of how racial slurs work is that an interesting thing to do yeah, yeah, let's let's okay. talk about it. Sure, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's super interesting, but I don't always have a good gauge on whether it's, like, objectively interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, in linguistics, the thing that got me going was, you know, McWhorter and Pinker, they will just say, it, it should be okay because use versus mention. Okay, all done, right? Yeah, easy peasy. And, Easy peasy. And like they get, you know, they have all these examples, like, you know, that professor Lori Sheck at the new school in New York, she did a lesson that was about James Baldwin, um, switching out some words from, uh, you know, in his speech versus in the documentary. And so the, the N word was present and she spoke it, you know, out loud and it was an intrinsic, it was an important part of this lesson that they discussed this word. And um, a student got upset and went to the school and there was an investigation and she was totally cleared. And that was such a bad thing, apparently, that, you know, McWhorter had to write a whole Atlantic op-ed about it. But Um, they did an investigation and she was cleared. And she was cleared. And he said, oh my gosh, just the fact that they used like school resources on this investigation is just, it's a travesty, uh, you know, and it's like, you know, I know you talked to Michael Hobbs about that recently, Mm -hmm. you know, what did he want to happen? Does he want no college student to ever get offended by anything? Like you can't, that's not feasible. Mm -hmm. Does he want, um, you know, students who request an investigation to not be entertained? Like Mm -hmm. that's not ethical. So what do you want? (laughs) You know, this was the, the ideal thing. Well, he wants all the resources to be used to investigate the wokes. That's correct. The woke elect. <laughs> the woke elect. He's, That's right. Oh, he's trying to make it happen. And it's not going to happen. Um, so anyway, you know, that's, that's the end of it. And it's like the linguistic landscape, the way that linguistics is looking at, at slurs is so far beyond that. And it's so much more interesting than just saying like, well, they're not using it. They're mentioning it. So it's okay. Right. So, so the, the linguistic community is a little bit split on whether using a racial slur is an expressive, meaning like it tells you, it tells the listener like the emotional state or the stance of the speaker. So like, you know, imagine you're at a party, at a house party, um, and somebody walks in and you go, oh, Greg brought his damn guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, the word damn tells you a lot about how you feel about the fact that Greg brought his guitar. hmm you know, he's about to ruin this party by, like, playing Wonderwall in, a, like, a sad <laughs> attempt to get girls, right? But if you're talking to a literalist new atheist on Twitter, they'll be like, 
show me where I said, you know, even if he said that I'm upset about Greg, exactly. <laughs> show me yeah. the exact words where I said, I didn't want Greg to bring his guitar or I don't like right. Greg playing his guitar. And to that person, I say, please attend a class on pragmatics because you are being very simplistic. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's one thing is like, okay, does a racial slur just tell you about the feelings of the person um, who is speaking it? And that's kind of, it, some people are still kind of arguing that, but it's also a little bit insufficient, right? I think using a racial slur tells you more than that, just how the, the person is feeling, because it also brings this whole historical set of associations with it. Um, and that is kind of independent of whoever's speaking it. All of those facts mm -hmm. about how the word has been used and by whom, you know, that, that stuff doesn't really have anything to do with how I'm feeling when I say it. Right. And that stripping everything of context and making sure that it's as ahistorical as possible, that is the IDW project, right? They might as well just adopt the, you know, uh, hashtag it's okay to be white slogan, right? I don't know why they don't. Why do they recognize that that's some alt-right thing? Because literally, if you, if you break it down and you just look at the words without yeah. any context... I mean, there is nothing wrong with being white, right? Yeah. It is okay. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, if you're somebody that is using the hashtag, it's okay to be white, you're recognized by someone like me to mm -hmm. be a far-right um, racist troll. Yeah. So that's something that's discussed by um, Taylor Jones, who's a, a linguist, and he talks about how by saying it's okay to be white, you are making the person ask, why are you saying this? You know, because it's usually an answer to something, and it doesn't make literal sense why it would be an answer to anything at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so when somebody says it's okay to be white, you know, it's so trivially true that it makes you go, hang on a minute. Why are you feeling the need to assert this at this time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the most logical explanations are quite sinister. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's how that happens. Right, um, right. And same thing with, like, Black Lives Matter versus White Lives Matter, right? Like, so someone yeah. that wants to strip everything of contacts will be like, well, you know, are you saying that white people, their lives don't matter? Well, no, that's right. not what anyone's saying. But once you start saying white lives matter in response to black lives matter, that sounds a bit white nationalisty. Yeah, especially that juxtaposition. That feels really bad. And that's why context is really important as well. Um, and so that's kind of the idea that's a little bit more popular than the expressives idea is it's called implicature. You're building an implicature with your non-literal choice of words, with either why or when or how you're saying something, what you are or aren't saying, that's also giving people a message. Um, and so, like, yeah, when somebody says all lives matter, you stop and you say, okay, for some reason, just the literal interpretation of this is not working for me, so I need to go hunting for implicatures. I need to think about why. Like, what other message are you sending? It's disingenuous when people do not see those other messages that are being put out there in those statements. And again, we're talking here about linguistic theories that have been around since the 70s or, you know, the late 60s. And it's nothing new and it's nothing all that groundbreaking. The idea that you can build an implicature, you know, that you can make inferences about what somebody is trying to tell you that's mm -hmm. beyond their literal speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why they employ this literalist tactic, right? That's why they're they're like this, because they want to be that concern troll. Mm -hmm. They want to strip it of context. And that's why they're like, but right. why can this guy say the N-word in this hip-hop song, but it's somehow bad when I sing along with it? Yeah. So so the implicature explanation, it's it definitely gets somewhere interesting. Um, it still relies on a couple of kind of ideas that are slightly insufficient when it comes to slurs. Slurs are just extreme. Like they're just a little bit hard to analyze by putting the same lenses on it as you do for normal speech. Uh, they just, they're just 
a bigger, harder beast to wrangle, basically. So we're still working for, on it, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but what we are confident about is that there are kind of two prongs to a racial slur. The first is that it's derogatory, that it, uh, you know, it says something about the situation of the people being referred to. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to Ellen McCready, who is a linguist who talks about slurs. She does pragmatics. She's amazing. Um, and she sent me her paper. It's Davis and McCready, the instability of slurs, which is really, really a nice kind of rundown of how, um, slurs can be interpreted in linguistics. So a slur has two major effects. One is that it is offensive Um, like it causes offense. And this is actually something we talk about in pragmatics as, you know, a technical term. It's, it's not necessarily always synonymous with the lay use, but it's pretty close. Essentially it's about how the hearer or the receiver of a message interprets it. So what it does is it invokes all of that historical content. Mm -hmm. That's the offensive part of it. It, it uh, reminds you of all of the things that we know about that word's use in the past. Um, if you have personal memories of having that word used on you, that's all coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anything that you've learned about it in an academic sense or times you've seen it in media, that's all somewhere being activated in your brain. Um, and so that's what's offensive about it is that it, it's giving you all of all of that content. And then it is also derogatory, which means that, you are making inferences about the attitudes and intentions of the person you're speaking to. So what you can do, this is where mention and use comes in. If you are not trying to endorse the slur, you're not trying to show that you agree with the slur, you can put it in a quotation. You say, I can't believe he called you this, or like, this person said this. That would be Um, like in writing or? Yeah, or in speech, you know. Like Um, Like a quotation as in just saying, oh, this person said this, and then you actually say the slur? Yeah. So what you're doing there is you're removing the derogatory content of it. You're showing that you are not a person who is feeling that it's an appropriate word to Mm -hmm. use, Mm -hmm. but you have not undone the offensiveness of it because all that context in history still exists regardless of your actions, right? It's all still there. And so that's where that cognition and emotion stuff comes in is that you're still having that same effect on the person because you're calling up all of that stuff for them. Mm. And so that is why, um, it's important that a person be able to tell why you have chosen to say the word, even though you are not using it in a derogatory sense, like Mm -hmm. hooray for you. It's not derogatory anymore, but that's only half the work. It's still offensive. It's still giving you the history. It's still giving you all of those physiological and psychological and neurological responses that are not actually ideal. (laughs) You know, you don't want to do that to somebody, at least if you care about them, you don't. Right. Right. And, um, this, I guess this fits nicely into this example that's coming to my mind. And I hate to go back to Sam Harris on my episode off from him, (laughs) but, um, it always comes back. (laughs) Yeah. He's such a great example of all the bullshit takes that I can think of. I don't know why, (laughs) but he just is. (laughs) Um, so in his latest podcast episode with Jesse single, he brought up this like, horrifying case that is just like supposed to be a great example of how wokeness is destroying civilization is that uh, some big shot over at Netflix I think I don't I don't know this case they all kind of blur into one for me because there's so many of these <laughs> interchangeable n-word cases that they're these guys are also worried about um, but anyway so as he describes it the Netflix guy said something in a meeting Uh, I think they had put out some comedy special where some comedian had said the R word a lot. And he was talking about, oh, you know, that was bad, I guess. It's not good for us. It's as bad as the N word is for black people. And he actually said the word. Right? So I guess some employees were offended in the meeting and they complained. But to Sam... 
this was just ridiculous that anyone could be offended. And I'm just thinking, well, no, because at work, you're in the right to expect not to hear that slur said by mm-hmm. <laughs> your white boss, especially. Yeah. Um, and it's putting you in a strange position. And especially there where it wasn't even a topic of conversation, like it was just out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know the specifics exactly of what was said in this meeting, but this is how it was described. And I'll put in a clip for people who mm-hmm. want to hear how Sam described it. But yeah, I just, it's not, it's not so simple that, oh, he didn't mean to use it in a racist way. Like it's for them. It's like if the person is like saying, yes, I am a racist. And you know, they're wearing like some KKK hood and then they say the N-word, that's like a bad use of it. Yeah. Versus everyone else in every other situation that's like, okay, yeah, they didn't mean it like the KKK Grand Dragon did, but there is a possibility that it can still be offensive right. to people who are sitting at work in a meeting, not expecting to have that word just thrown at them. Yeah. And this is why time after time, every example you give, if you apply this lens where you're splitting up the derogation versus the offensiveness of the word, it just always seems to apply really, really well, right? He took out the derogation because he wasn't trying to apply it to anybody. He was even indicating his stance that it's a bad thing to say that word. Um, But when he said it, the offensiveness was still triggered. All of those facts, that stuff is not in the speaker's control. You can't just undo that. Um, You know, it projects out of the utterance. It's it's too big for you to control. And that's why slurs are special. And that's why especially the N-word in, you know, in American English is so bad. Right. Problem is that if you flipped it, if you flipped the, to take the, the variable of race here, it is reverse racism. What? It's creating a completely which case, hostile which case work are you, you mean like the Yale thing? No, the Yale thing was deranged around this this issue of Halloween costumes. and But I mean, the, the thing that is causing so much chaos in most of these instances in these corporations, obviously the trans issue comes up again and again, but it, it's much more common that the issue is born of concerns about racial inequality, which, you know, obviously are are understandable and uh, need to be addressed in some way throughout our society. Of course, of course, these concerns are always understandable as a broad, vague, general, abstract thing, but almost never acceptable in specific cases. I mean, this is the guy who thinks Trump has been unfairly called racist by the left. Because whatever things he was called racist for weren't clear enough examples, apparently. And he's also the same guy who thought Steve Bannon was unfairly slimed by the left. So of course he's not going to try and understand the nuances in situations like these. That charitableness is reserved for the right and far right. But this is just a continuous allegation of racism where the allegation is not only unwarranted, it's obviously unwarranted, right? Like all the participants actually know that it's unwarranted. I mean, take the case of, I mean, there are so many cases here, but the, the one that comes to mind here is what happened at Netflix with the, um, the head of communications, uh, Jonathan Friedland, who got fired. You know, he for using the N-word in a context that was not a use of the N-word as a slur. It was a use of the N-word to tell people just, you know, what a concern it was that they get their messaging correct. For those who don't remember this episode, briefly what happened is Tom Segura, the comic, released a comedy special on Netflix where he used the word retard over and over again, and they got a ton of blowback. And so Jonathan Friedland, who was head of communications, in a closed-door meeting at the company, said, listen, this is this is a huge deal. It, it turns out that using this word is like using the N-word for the black community. But he didn't say N-word, he used the word. And for that, use of the magic syllables, in a context where he's expressing his own, you know, very liberal opinion that they have to be even more scrupulous about the 
use of the word retard, he wound up getting fired, but it was in a, a context where literally no one thought that he was actually a racist, right? This was right. not a case where there was a, that his use of the word suggested to so many people that he really is a, a closeted racist. No, he had simply uttered the word Voldemort, and it was the taboo is so deep that there was no digging out. So there's a couple different things. There, there was another case similar at the New York Times involving Donald McNeil Jr. that right. I, I found similarly infuriating. And you had, you had, you know, 150 Times staffers signing a letter demanding he be reinvestigated. I, I do think there's maybe a difference between cases like that where, you know, basically what, what people are trying to do there is establish what would be a new linguistic rule, which is that mentioning the term is the same as using it in a derogatory way or close to it, which I find morally and linguistically crazy. Just popping in again to share my thoughts on this clip. It's very interesting that Sam starts this point by mentioning that these quote-unquote unfair allegations of racism amount to reverse racism, which as we all know is the only real racism. (laughs) And these aren't new linguistic rules as Caitlin already mentioned in our chat. And I don't think the intent is to equate mention and use, but rather to point out that it can still be hurtful in situations without the deliberate racist intent, as Caitlin's been explaining. And to some extent, even the anti-wokes know this, because if it's truly something they think is criticized unfairly, and as Sam says, he's technically uncancelable, why then doesn't he just go ahead and say it in this context? where all he's doing is describing a case. If it's that unreasonable to criticize people for being offended by the mention of Voldemort, why not show you're not one of these snowflakes and say it yourself? Say Voldemort. I didn't realize Sam capitulated to unreasonable wokeness so much. (laughs) All right, back to the conversation. Ah, yeah. And so I just find it to be such a sinister project to spend your time and your large platform advocating for these people. Okay, maybe they they were over-criticized and it was harsh or whatever. Right. But there are a a lot of other things you could be using your platform to talk about, to dwell on these N-word cases and these specific circumstances where, yes, it wasn't as offensive as David Duke uttering it or something. It's just very transparent. Yeah. to say the n-word any longer that's disgusting it's a farce it's the only word that you can't say in the english language it is idiotic that you cannot say the n-word idiotic of course you should never call anybody the n-word that's despicable but to say the word you can't even say that the word is despicable you have to say the n-word I do want to say this about the N-word, okay? I do want to say this about the N-word, okay? Clearly people are getting fired over it just by saying a word regardless of the context. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think clearly we have an unjustifiable and irrational level of discomfort with the N-word. Unjustifiable and irrational level of discomfort with the N-word. I mean, there's a, there's a whole Wikipedia page here, I'm not going to say the N-word. I'm saying a different word. That Even if you do, we can probably bleep it out. It has nothing to do with the N-word. The word is niggardly. It is spelled N-A-G-G-A-R-D-L-Y. And it's a synonym for stingy that is linguistically completely unrelated to the N-word, right? This, there's a Wikipedia page dedicated only to scandals around this word. Like, if that's not a signal that we are hypersensitive about this word then I don't know what would be. Who got fired. You know, he, for using the N-word in a context that was not a use of the N-word as a slur, it was the use of the N-word to tell people just, you know, what a concern it was that they get their messaging correct. Using the N-word, using the N-word. Using the N-word. 
and you know it all collects you know every every few weeks you get another one of these um tweets or stories or op-eds or whatever talking about it and it paints a picture that you know they definitely consider it to be protected speech it is something that you shouldn't even get to criticize somebody over or have somebody you know go through an investigation or have a meeting discussing it none of that's all just beyond the pale unacceptable that's basically censorship um, However, it, <laughs> we should make the wokesters unemployable. I mean, he said this in the same exact conversation, right? Right. That there <laughs> should be material punishments for people who are too woke, but people who are going around using the N-word when they could have gotten around it, nothing should happen to them. No one should even in the workplace talk even. to them about it. Right. Yeah, and it, and in you know um, situations where there's a power imbalance, like professors with students or bosses right. with employees, like really, you don't think even a meeting, just a meeting. <laughs> Let's just have a quick HR talk, like just something. But yeah. that's just beyond the pale. And uh, and yeah, they always go back to like oh, words aren't magic. You can't change any. You can't really hurt somebody with words. And it's like. Do you think that brains can hurt you? Do you think your brain can hurt you? Because it can. You know? How about if you call someone racist? Because apparently that's more hurtful than anything in the world. Please, you're making my heart rate elevate just <laughs> at the thought. I can't take it. Like, that's the biggest slur ever. Yeah, I, I just came out in a cold sweat just thinking, <laughs> what if someone called me racist? Like, definitely worse. It would be way worse than, um, you know, experiencing racism or having actual slurs hurled at you. Right. I remember on Twitter once I said something about, like, a white, like, some white atheist guy was talking about how ex-Muslims should conduct themselves or something like that. So I just said, <laughs> "Cool, you know, this white dude thinks that, you know, and, and this person had a history of defending Milo's racist jokes and all of that. Mm. So I was like, okay, yeah, we're going to take advice from... This guy, and I think I said white guy or something like that. And he said, he took a screenshot of it and he was like, oh, so she's now hurling race-based slurs or something mm -mm. along those lines. Like, white guy is, like, the guy yeah. who always says that minorities should chill out about slurs and Milo is definitely not a racist and all. <laughs> Oh, they'll kind of always go for that, though. It's always right there in, in their quiver <laughs> yeah. to just grab. And there is, there is no mainstream linguistic analysis by which pointing out that someone is white is a slur. Not if you go by the semantic, you know, truth conditions of a slur. Not if you go by the associative conditions of a slur. None of it. None of that. <laughs> I can tell you definitively as a linguist, <laughs> white guy is not a slur. <laughs> <laughs> so to end this conversation off, how about you define like what makes a slur? Sure. So there's kind of two angles you can hit it from. The first is the semantic angle. So you can say like, okay, why is something a slur? Um, does it have are there like conditions it has to meet in order to qualify? Um, and so um, Davis and McCready put together three major points. Um, it's a slur if it derogates a group. So if it implies something bad about a group of people, if that derogation subordinates them into an existing power structure. So that's where the white guy thing fails, right? You can't call somebody more powerful than you a name and have it qualify as a slur. Uh, and then third, that the group is defined by an intrinsic property or like a property that's conceptualized by your culture to be intrinsic. So something like, you know, gender or sex or sexual orientation or race or something like that. You know, you can have a conversation about those things being social constructs and that's very, very valuable, hmm. but most people treat them as if they're just properties of you. Um, and so if you meet those three conditions, then it's a slur. So those are so like widely accepted conditions of being a slur? For the people who take the semantic uh, approach, yes. Okay. Um, there's another way to think about what is a slur, and it's uh, a more uh, implicature-based way. It's, it's a little bit more 
difficult to define, but essentially it, it just has to do with association. If it's a word that bigots use to derogate somebody, then it is a slur. Basically, that's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if if it's associated with abuse, racial abuse, or you know, um, abuse on the basis of your sex or your gender or whatever, then it is a slur. Right, and so they keep coming up with new ones. And in that way, calling someone a white guy still fails. Oh, right. Yeah, that's the thing is they'll always come up with a new one. And, uh, you know, as soon as the one that they have becomes too unacceptable and they just get shouted down as soon as they say it, they'll come up with a new one. Yeah. Yeah, that's why they always have these little codes. Both of those concepts, so the association one and the semantic one, they both eliminate the idea that you can have a slur for, uh, like, a political affiliation or an opinion, right? So, like, people who say turf is a slur or people who say Nazi is a slur. Linguistically, we just don't really accept those claims as valid. Mm-hmm. And would—so, would Pinker and McWhorter— have a different definition or I am not convinced that they have thought that hard about it (laughs) honestly (laughs) based on the way that they talk about it they kind of stop at it's okay to mention this word as long as you have stripped it of its derogatory meaning you are fine right as long as you've divorced yourself from endorsing it you're Mm. all good And they either don't know about or don't agree with this extremely mainstream, well-accepted idea that offensiveness is independent of the derogation. Yeah, if something is tied to a history of just awful use, I can't see how they wouldn't, how they wouldn't get that, right? Like, right. Well, that's right. And, you know, I do discourse analysis, which I think they would not necessarily respect as a linguistic discipline, which is fine. Um, But what it does, what it posits is that we are constructing our reality every moment with our actions. And so whenever we say something or act in a way that indicates our idea of how the world works, we make the world work that way a little bit more. And so we are actually having material impacts, not just on the brain of somebody who's experiencing, you know, horrible memories because we've introduced an offensive term, but also by suggesting that this is something that we're comfortable with reifying and that we're comfortable with reinforcing with our words. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, there's reclamation of slurs. People do that all the time right. and it has to be done very carefully and by the people to whom it refers. Right. I cannot reclaim the N word. <laughs> <laughs> that is not something I can do. I can reclaim slut. <laughs> I right. can reclaim words for women, right. but I cannot be participating in the reclamation or like the bleaching of the offensiveness of the N word because that is not something that's in my power. Somebody to whom you know, it historically has applied can do that. And what they're doing is they're challenging the social norms that make that word so traumatic. And it's a long, hard process Mm -hmm. and it's not smooth. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be fits and starts and people are going to object to it. You know, just like we have Ben Shapiro whining about the N word being in rap songs. (laughs) It's, it's not going to be easy, but it is a process by which those social norms are challenged. And, and, you know, that could be seen as a positive thing. Right. And people do it to take the pain and the sting out of the word. Right. Yeah. But even once it's been reclaimed, I see I'm no linguist, but I assume it works like it's acceptable within the group to say it, Mm -hmm. but outside of the group, it is still even not, it's still not acceptable. That's exactly right. The reclaimed version will live parallel to the offensive version in society. And it, it just depends on who is speaking it and to whom. Right. Right. Yeah. One time I blocked this person on Twitter for calling me a sand N word. Goodness. Um, and then their friend emailed me. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, saying that no, it's okay that they say that because their friend was black and they allow them to use it around when they're hanging out or whatever and they just use slurs at each other and at that point I, I didn't bother explaining it to them but I'm like okay what happens between a group of friends privately mm-hmm. involves some sort of consent even if it's not explicit right like if you are right. joking with each other or just whatever saying a slur affectionately as a joke to your friend right that is not something that you can put upon another person of color because right. they That's- do not have that relationship with you That's another way that you're stripping away the derogatory sense of the word using context. And that is context that they and their friends share that is not shared with you. Exactly. And they did not say it to me like in a friendly way at all. They were like (laughs) super rude and offensive. But their friend decided to email and say, no, no, you shouldn't be mad because this is the kind of exchange I have with him. Right. So they and, hit both points. They made it derogatory and offensive. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, they definitely didn't. And I didn't know them, like, even on Twitter. Like, what the fuck? Right. Yeah, that's extremely unhelpful. <laughs> um, so I didn't bother explaining to their friend because it's like, if you don't understand why I'm blocking someone for calling me that. No, that's right. <laughs> there's no point. The thing about the offensive content of a slur existing beyond the control of the person who is speaking it is that no member of that group can declare it officially unoffensive. Yeah, right? you, you can't declare for everybody else that no, this because no longer you can't, hurts. You don't have a time machine. You can't go back and fix all of the memories that a person, that everyone in the world has, you know, relating to that slur. And the the fact that the offensive content of a slur is independent of the speaker's control, that and, means that nobody can just say it's not offensive anymore. Right. And I'm also not even of the group that has the history with the N-word. Right. Uh, but the sand N-word is like a new <laughs> version of it that is used right. for people of my background. So they're slightly two different words even, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you have some ownership over that because it's been applied to you. You're a part of the slurred group. Right, right. <laughs> this is the longest and most detailed conversation I've ever had about slurs. <laughs> it's like I've never dissected slurs in this way before. And with a linguist, <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah, the subject matter is upsetting and depressing, but uh, linguistics is fun, and people should do linguistics. <laughs> well, no, if more people thought about this kind of stuff, then they wouldn't have mm-hmm. these stupid excuses like, oh, well, why can this guy say it, and why can't I say it? And my friend says it to me, and I say that's okay, so then my friend should be able to say it to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you just thought about it, you yeah. are not the only people who exist in the world. Yeah, you are not the only person. There's a whole world out there. <laughs> oh, see, this is something that we try to explain to people over and over again, and not everybody really takes it in. Right, and just professional conduct as well in terms of meetings, right? Just how about we mm-hmm. have a rule where you don't say the N-word in an office meeting. You right. just don't. You know, it doesn't matter if you're saying it is bad just don't say it you can find another way to say it but this is silencing people yeah even just asking them to talk around it just quick just briefly just figure out a way to refer to it without actually uttering it we have ways of doing that we have the phrase the n-word yeah and the fact that that extremely available option is there and you didn't take it again i get to form some inferences about what implicatures you have created by making that choice right we just we have some social norms that are agreed upon right like we don't Mm -hmm. get into a meeting and then specify all of them all the time but it's just understood that there are some things that are unprofessional to say and that's been the case for a long time i mean these words may change but um, or get added to. Yeah, we... but you have been a user of one or more languages your whole life. You are competent at forming meaning together in a, in 
you know, in groups mm-hmm. and it's, it's not necessary that we restate all of the rules, right? I don't need to specify that I'm going to make my tone go up at the end when I have a question because you know <laughs> that already. And I don't need to specify that racial slurs are not an option in our meeting. <laughs> It's so funny because if you made a caricature of these guys, which is getting harder and harder to do because <laughs> because they're so ridiculous, yeah. you would have to specify that you are going to raise your voice at the end of a question. Right. <laughs> because otherwise it'd be like, no, uh, you didn't say that. Or, you know, they'd have some weird <laughs> literalist toddler-esque thing to say that that analogy you made like in the beginning of our conversation where the toddler or the kid is like sticking their toes in the room is so perfect because that's how (laughs) I see them all the time I mean I have a two and something two-year-old and you see how they test your patience the Mm two-year-old will grow out of it but the IDWer will not. I mean, I hope the two-year-old will grow out of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I know it gives me flashbacks to like telling my almost two-year-old how to properly interact with our cat. Like, (laughs) is this an okay place to touch? Is this an okay way to touch? Like, well, I'm... Why are you silencing her? a little differently. Why are you, you know... Yeah, right? Silencing her ability to pull the cat's hair. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, she should be able to express herself on the cat however she wants, but (laughs) I'm a monster, so... Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you, and we'll talk again soon when we can reschedule our original conversation. But hey, we had like a very nice, uh, um, unexpected discussion on slurs. Yeah, that was great. I mean, yeah, all all of the IDW mentioned versus you stuff just sent me down a rabbit hole trying to figure this stuff out. And I feel like I learned a lot and I was just so excited to share it with you. (laughs) It's so funny, (laughs) these adjectives that we're using uh, about a conversation about slurs. I had a lovely chat with Caitlin about (laughs) slurs. Yeah, I was so excited. (laughs) Just want to clarify for people. Uh, We, I don't like slurs and they're not nice. Why do I? Yeah. And I'd also like to point out that we managed to have this whole conversation uh, without ever saying the N-word. That's only because we're woke cucks. That's right. Yeah, if we were brave free speech warriors, then we'd actually say them. I don't know, Spotify would drop the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, not if Joe Rogan said it. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, it was lovely chatting with you, and uh, we'll chat again soon. Where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Mariah, um, and I have links to relevant things from there. Um, you'll you know you'll find me when you see the banner that is a meme someone made me because they were mad at me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal nicemangoes.blog at gmail.com Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. 